Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right. So Romans chapter 9 is probably one of the most difficult passages of Scripture. I don't think it's difficult to understand. I think it's difficult to accept what Paul's teaching. Nancy, I'm just kind of calling you out tonight. <laughs> no, I'm just, I know you don't have to be quiet. I'm just, I'm just saying. Um, so it's been a few weeks since we left off Romans chapter 8. We took a break over Christmas. Let me just remind you back to all of the things that God did for us. So let's go back to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. Because this is kind of the crescendo of this portion of Romans as to all the spiritual blessings that God has given us. Okay, So Romans eight twenty eight. we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Okay, so you look at our salvation from eternity past to eternity future. In the past, before we were born, before the world was created, God foreknew us, God predestined us. Then at a point in time, God called us to salvation. When God called us, He granted us new life. We repented and believed, and once we believed in Jesus, we were justified. And then one day in the future, God's going to glorify us. We're going to get new resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And then Paul ends chapter 8 with, who can separate us from the love of Christ and lists all these things. And basically, it's impossible if you're one of God's children to ever be separated from Christ. Okay? Now, Paul's going to shift gears in Romans chapter 9. 10 and 11 to focus on the Jewish people. Okay? There's a mixed audience in the book of Romans between Jew and Gentile. Now, let's go back to the very beginning. Okay? Romans 1:16. You can turn there, but I think I've got it memorized, so I'm going to try to read it without going there, but tell me if I'm wrong, okay? Romans 1:16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation of all who believe to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Okay, so let's just ask the question, who, who did the gospel go to first? Why? Okay, if you go all, okay, because they're chosen? Because I'm hearing you guys are saying they're chosen people, okay? Now keep that thought in your mind because that's the question Paul is going to be bringing up. You go all the way back to the Old Testament, you got Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob, you've got all of the Old Testament promises, and then Jesus himself was from the lineage of the Jewish people, the disciples were Jewish, the church was birthed as Jewish, and then Paul comes on the scene and Paul starts going out to these Gentile, non-Jewish areas, and what's happening? Thousands and thousands of non-Jews, Gentiles, are getting saved. 
Now, what's happening to the Jewish people? They get upset. They get upset. Okay. So for the person reading the book of Romans, they're thinking to themselves, now, wait a minute, Paul. These are wonderful privileges of salvation that you're talking about. Being predestined, being chosen, being called, being justified, salvation. It is amazing that the Gentiles are recipients of these blessings. But what about the Jews? How come the Jews aren't coming to faith in Christ? Why are they rejecting their Messiah? What's the deal? It sounds like God reneged on His promise to them because aren't they quote-unquote the chosen people? And if they're the chosen people, it seems like they would be coming to faith in Christ. That's going to be the question we're going to deal with tonight, okay? That's the, that's the issue, Risa. Um, and the answer is no, but, um, but we'll get there. So let's read chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Okay, chapter 9. I'm going to go slow tonight because... Um, if you truly understand what Paul's saying, you're going to get uncomfortable with what Paul's saying. Okay? But let's just read it. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, worship, and promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Okay, Paul's anguishing concern for the Jews. Okay? Now, why is Paul in anguish? What's he saying there? Verse 2, I am in great sorrow and have unceasing anguish in my heart. And he even goes so far as to say, if it were possible, what does he say in verse 3? If I could somehow lose my salvation and be sent to hell, I would do it for my fellow Israelites to be saved. Now, Based upon everything that we've read in Romans so far, can Paul lose his salvation and be cast into hell? No. It's Paul speaking exaggerated language there, but he has great sorrow for his people. Now, Israel, the Israelites, notice what he says in verse 4, they are Israelites. So being an Israelite brought great temporary blessings. Okay, so Paul's going to list temporary blessings that the Israelites had back in the Old Testament. Okay, so let's just read these off. Verse 4, they are the Israelites, and to them belong, okay, to them belong the adoption. They were God's chosen, privileged people. Um, Exodus chapter 4 tells us that Israel was God's adopted son, God's own son. So they were, they were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. What else does it say? They had the glory. Okay, that refers to you. Uh, let's go back to Exodus, guys. A lot of the Exodus language here from, from Sunday mornings. And by the way, we're getting back into Exodus this Sunday. So we're getting back into it. Um, the glory cloud. Remember the glory cloud that was the pillar of cloud during the day and fire at night and the glory cloud that rested over the tabernacle. So they had that, the glory of God over the tabernacle. The covenants. 
the covenants that God made with Abraham and with Noah and with David and with Moses, all the, the covenants that God made with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They had the law. They had the Ten Commandments. They had written on stone what God expected to them. That was a, a great blessing. They had the worship. They had the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrificial system. They had the promises, all those Old Testament promises that they would be in a land and be a people and all those great promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Okay, who were the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the founding fathers of the Jewish people. And then not only that, what was the greatest privilege that the Israelites had? Jesus. Jesus came from the lineage, the Messiah came from the lineage of the Israelites. Okay. So here's Paul's question. This is the key question he's going to ask for the next three chapters. If Israel is God's chosen people, to whom these glorious temporary blessings have been given that we just looked at, the law, the promises, the covenants, the, the glory, if all those things have been given to them as God's chosen people, then why are so few ethnic Jews actually getting saved? Why are they accursed and cut off? Why are the Gentiles coming to faith in large numbers, but ethnic Jews are refusing to believe in Jesus? That's the question. And how you answer that question depends on how you interpret this passage of Scripture. So the question is, why aren't the Jews getting saved? Because what would be the logical, what would be the logical, if you're a Jewish person, what would be your logical um, reasoning as to what would happen to you if you're a Jewish person? What would you think? Because I am Jewish, therefore I'm automatically saved. Okay, so A plus B equals, so A equals, I don't want to do, I don't want, I don't want to deal with math. Let's not deal with math. Um, I don't even like math. Why am I trying to do math? Let's just put it this way. Here's the, here's, the, here's the premise that an Israelite would have. I am an Israelite. I am a chosen person. Therefore, I automatically get to go to heaven based upon being an Israelite. Okay, and Paul's going to say, now, wait a minute, time out, Israelites. Let me give you the answer that's always been the answer all the way back to the Old Testament about how God saves people. Okay, so in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, you have Paul talking about the true Israel. Okay. There is such a thing as ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel, the true Israel. And God's way of salvation. Now, you may not like Paul's answer. And I'm going to give you Paul's answer, but you're going to have to deal with it, okay? So the question is, why are Jews not getting saved? And Gentiles are. Now, does that mean all Gentiles are getting saved also? Okay, so let's make it, let's make it even broader. Why are some people getting saved and others not? More specifically, why are Jews not getting saved and Gentiles are? Okay, here's... Here's Paul's answers, two basic answers, and we'll unpack that. Answer number one, Paul says, is just because you're ethnically Jewish does not automatically guarantee that you will be saved. That was the presumption of the Jews. They thought they were automatically going to heaven based upon their lineage or their ethnicity. The only way you would not go to heaven as a Jew is if you apostatized. 
which means you renounced your Judaism and you followed a pagan religion. Then you would, then you would be cut off. But if you were ethnically a Jewish person, you automatically were in because you're automatically chosen. Paul says, time out, that's not true. And then number two, God chooses some people to be saved while passing over others who will not be saved. And this is how God has always done things. Now, let's look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So what's the issue Paul's dealing with? God's word must have failed, because if God chose the Israelites and they're not coming to faith in Christ, then God must have messed up. He must have not been good on his promise. There must be something wrong with God's word. It must have failed. And Paul says, you're misunderstanding how God saves people. What does he say? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So, so let's think about that for a moment. Just because you're an ethnic Jew does not mean that you are automatically part of Israel. Okay? And he's going to give some examples from Israel's history. Okay? Who was the father of who was the first quote-unquote Jew? Abraham. Okay. Abraham had two sons, right? Well, Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right hand, no, I'm just, no he had two main sons. So let's, let's read this. It goes back to Genesis 21. Okay. So you've got Isaac and Ishmael were the two sons of Abraham. Now, let's do a family tree. I, I'm good, I, I can... We don't have to do math, but we can do a family tree. Okay, so Abraham. Who was Abraham's wife? Okay, so Abraham plus Sarah equals Isaac. Okay, that is math, okay? <laughs> Reproductive math, okay? So here we go. Abraham plus Sarah equals Isaac. Okay, so Abraham, Sarah, they birthed Isaac. Okay. Abraham and who? Hagar birthed Ishmael. Okay, so what's, this, what's the constant between the two sons? They have the same dad, different moms. Okay, so you could say that Ishmael could be a legitimately an Israelite because he came from Abraham, even though Hagar was Egyptian. Okay. And Ishmael did have some promises that God gave him, but who was the child of the promise? Isaac. Okay, and so let's read. Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be Named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Okay? So, here's the point Paul's making. Both Ishmael and Isaac were physical descendants of Abraham, but only one was true Israel. Who was the true Israel? Isaac. So, does being a son of Abraham automatically guarantee you being a child of the promise? 
And why, what proof does Paul give as an example? Ishmael. Okay? So what makes you a child of God? Is it birth or faith in Christ? Faith in Christ. So whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, how do you become a child of God? You have faith in Jesus. Now what's a Jew thinking? I can become a child of God. I don't have to become a child of God. I'm already a child of God by virtue of being an Israelite. And Paul says, back up, wait a minute, not so is the case. You may be ethnically or physically descended from the Jewish people, but that doesn't mean that you're a true child of God. It's only by faith in Christ. And so Paul's first argument there is, listen, just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham or just because you're an ethnic Jew does not guarantee your salvation, does not guarantee you're a child of God, does not guarantee you're one of God's people. Okay? And so Paul did talk about being a child of God. That language, child of God, goes back... You can go back and read it. We won't right now. But if you go back to Romans 8, last chapter, uh, 16 through 21, it talks about how do we know we're truly children of God if we have the Holy Spirit in us. So who are those that are children of God? Only those that have received the Holy Spirit through salvation. Okay. So analogy or illustration number one that Paul uses to kind of deal with this argument of why are the Jews not coming to faith is argument number one, just because you're a physical descendant of the Jewish people does not guarantee anything. And case number one in point, evidence number one, he goes back to Isaac and Ishmael. Okay? Now, let's do family tree number two. Okay, so let's take, let's take Ishmael off the board because he was not the son of the promise. So Abraham plus Isaac will Sarah carry the Isaac... Who's Isaac's wife? Rebecca. Isaac plus Rebecca equals who? You guys say Jacob and Esau, but who was born first? Esau. Are they twins? Okay, so how is this different than the one before it? They both have the same mom and dad, and they're both twins. So are these guys ethnic Israelites? Why are, they both, why are they both true Israelites? Or not true Israelites. Why are they both ethnic Israelites? Because they came from Isaac. Okay, but you, you, could, you could easily see why Ishmael was not chosen, right? But the question becomes, okay, why is Jacob chosen and Esau not chosen when they have the same parent? So let's, let's read. Let's keep reading here. And this is where it gets difficult. So just... Just kind of stick with it here, okay? So verses 10 through 13, you've got Jacob and Esau, okay? For this is what was promised, said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Okay, that's Isaac, verse 10. And not only so, not only just Sarah and Abraham, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Okay. <laughs> this is where people get a little squirmish. Let's just look at the text and ask some questions. When did the election of the twins occur? What does the Bible say? Before they were born. So did God make a choice after they were born? Okay. So did they do anything after birth to earn God to choose them? It wasn't like they grew up and God said, okay, Jacob took this path, chose this path. Esau took this path. And therefore, because Jacob chose the right path, I chose him. Esau chose the wrong path. I chose him. Is that what the Bible says? It was done before they were born. Also, why did God choose them? <laughs> it doesn't say. But why, why did he not choose them? It was before they had done anything good or bad. Okay. So this choosing of one over the other is called unconditional election. Now, why is it called unconditional election? Because Paul right here states there were no conditions the boys had to meet in order for God to choose them. Did God choose Jacob over Esau because of the works that they had done? Was it because Esau was evil and Jacob was faithful? You could easily say, well, I can, easily, I can see it, God. You chose Jacob because he had faith and he was good. You chose Jacob, Esau because he rejected you and he was bad. What, is, what does the Bible say here? It was before they were born and had done anything good or bad. And let me ask you a question. Who was worse, Jacob or Esau? When you go back and read the story, were either one of them stellar characters of righteousness? Okay, Jacob comes out grabbing Esau's heel. He's called the heel grabber, the conniver, the deceiver. And Jacob is deceiving, deceiving, deceiving. So neither, do either one of these boys, have either one of these boys done anything in life to earn either being chosen to be chosen. Okay. So here's the question. It's not why did God choose Jacob and not choose Esau? The question you got to ask is why did God choose Jacob? He probably should have rejected both of them. Okay? God probably should have said, "You know what? Both these guys are jerks and I'm just going to move on." But God chose Jacob before either boy was born and before either one of them had done anything good or bad. So does God choose people for salvation? Yes. When does that choosing take place? Okay, so let's, we already read Romans 8, 28 and 30. But let's just look at some of these verses again. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What does that mean? They were appointed to eternal life. What does it mean to be appointed to eternal life? Okay, so as a result of being appointed to eternal life, what did they do? They, so what came first, the believing or the being appointed? Being appointed. Okay. When did that appointment take place? Before we were born. How do we know that? Okay, it says in the next verse, thanks, I'm glad you guys are saying, because the Bible says so. Okay, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as He chose us in Him when? 
before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Okay, and then 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, look at the words in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of what? Works, but because of Him who... Okay, so can you say your election or their election was based on works? Any type of work. What was it totally based upon? God's call. Okay. So, was there anything that Jacob did to earn being called? Was there anything Esau did to earn being called? No. Equal playing field were both Jacob and Esau evil? Yes. So, God did not say, Jacob had better works than Esau, and therefore, because Jacob had better works than Esau, I called and chose him. It was strictly because of God's purpose. Now, 2 Timothy 1.9 combines these words together. God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Why did He call us and save us? Not because of what? Works, but because of His own purpose and grace. And when did this happen? Which He gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. Okay, so let's just talk about election here for a moment. In the case of Jacob and Esau, when did the election take place? Before they were born. Was it based upon their works? Was it based upon God's call? Okay, let's talk about us. When did our election take place? Before the foundation of the earth. Was it based upon anything that we would do? No. What's it based upon? God's purpose and call. Okay. Now. Yes. Yes. Now we're going to get to that right now. Because that's a quote from Malachi. You guys know who Malachi is. He's the Italian prophet. He's the last of the prophets. Malachi. Malachi. <laughs> Malachi. Yeah. It's a quote from Malachi. Okay, so Malachi 1, 2 through 3, the God is speaking, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Okay, this is very striking language that if you've never read Romans chapter 9 and you come across wording where it says God actually loves one person and hates another person, you have to stop in your tracks and think, now wait a minute. That sounds shocking. I thought God is love and God is loving and that God would never actually say He hates somebody. 
So we've got to deal with it. Okay? There are a couple of psalms where it says God hates the evildoer. So Psalm 5, 6, you destroy. Whoops. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsting, deceitful man. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsting, deceitful man. What does uh, to abhor mean? To hate. Okay. <clears throat> Psalm 11, 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Okay. So let's just ask some questions of this text, and then I'm going to um, address some objections because I'm sure you're going to have some objections, and I want to address those. Was God's love or God's hate for these twins based upon what they did or would do? No. Why? Because the text clearly tells us, right? Okay? It's not based upon works or whether they did anything good or bad. Did either Jacob or Esau deserve God's love? As individuals. Okay. Now here's the question. You said no to both of those. Now let me ask you the next question and see if you say no to that. Is God obligated to save everybody? Is He obligated to save everybody? If God is obligated to do something, what does that mean? There, he has to do it. There's something that we would. There's something that that we earned or did that made God do it. Okay. So I don't want you to think so much in terms of emotion here. When we think of love and hating, we often think of of like really intense emotions. Um. I want you to think more in the sense of choosing. God chose Jacob, and God rejected Esau. Now, it's easy to say, okay, I, I can buy that if it's based upon what they did. I can see how God chose Jacob and rejected Esau because Esau rejected God. But is there anything in the text that tells you that that's the reason why God loved them or hated them? What does Paul even say? It was before they were born or had done anything good or bad. Now, there are two truths that you have to come to, co to grips with in the Bible that are not contradictory. Okay. It's a paradox. What's a paradox? Two ducks walking along a pond, right? It's a paradox. <laughs> no, it's a paradox. You're not supposed to laugh. That's like a really old joke. Um, but you, thank, thank, you, thank, thank you that you laughed at it anyway. No, a paradox is two simultaneous things that are true side by side that appear to be at odds but they're actually true. They're not contradictions. So the Bible doesn't contradict or is in conflict. They're two truths that we, in, our, in our puny minds, we may not be able to see how they are, are compatible or, or side by side, but they're there. And so here's the two truths. Does the Bible teach truth that God is love? Yes. That God is compassionate, that God is loving. Truth number two, does the, Bible does the Bible teach that God does not choose everybody to be saved? Or let's put it another way. The question, okay, here's the question. Because we're, we're in this deep hole anyway. Let's, let's add, all right, so 
where, where do we all agree? Do, do, we, do, do we all agree with this statement? I'll write a statement up here. This is not in your notes. Not everybody gets saved. Would you agree with that? If you don't agree with that, then you believe everybody's going to heaven, which is called universalism. Okay. Does the Bible teach that everybody gets saved? Okay. Now, here's where the rub comes. The question becomes why? Why does everybody not get saved? And this is where you have all the different views. Some would say, well, they chose not to get saved, and it's their fault. Others would say, God chose them not to get saved, and God's the one that's, I don't want to say God's at fault, but God is the one that made that choice. But let me just ask you from this passage, are there any conditions that these boys have to meet in order to get saved? Or be chosen? Okay. Now, objections. <laughs> okay. Objections. I object, Your Honor. Let me give you two alternate views because I want to be fair to the other views that are out there. And um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because um, just for the sake of time tonight, we've got to get to the whole passage of Scripture. But if you do not hold to the view that I hold to on Romans chapter 9, you have the free will to choose the two other views that you want. There's two other views that you can choose that, that are legitimate, legitimate historical views that other people that are Bible-believing Christians would hold to. I would disagree with them, but I think that they would say, they would have biblical reasons for why they do that. Okay? So, and I'm going I'm to give labels to them. Okay? So there's the Arminian view. And this is the view that says God predestined people because he foresaw what they would do. So when God, when a person exercises faith in Jesus, God sees that faith in eternity past, chooses that person because they met the conditions of election, namely faith. So, so let me give you an example. I've given this example many times. Okay, so... Before the foundation of the world, God chooses people to get saved. In this view, God looks down into the future and sees what's going to happen. And God sees Sally in 1984 at youth camp trusting Jesus for salvation. She says yes to Jesus. She asks Jesus into her heart. She trusts Christ. When God sees her believing in Jesus, God chooses her. When was the choice made? Way back in eternity past, but God sees that choice. If God looks down and never sees Sally ever choosing Jesus, what ends up happening? She doesn't get chosen because she never chooses Jesus. Okay, So that's a, a really brief way to explain the Arminian view. But let me just ask a question here. If Paul had assumed that faith that God foresaw was a requirement for God's election, don't you think he would have mentioned it? He could have just said at this point, well, God's not unjust in choosing Jacob over Esau because God saw that Jacob would have faith. And God saw that Esau would not have faith. So God chose Jacob because of his faith. God chose Esau because of his unbelief. Yes, Risa.
He created them to have faith. But is it? So why would you look to the future to see that so and so has faith and then say, okay, that person's cursed? If he created that person in the first place. I don't understand what you're saying. So he created Sally in 1984, but that was. Well, he created her when she was born. Right. (laughs) But he saw her in like eons past. Right. 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 In his mind, yeah. Right. Well, he created her to have faith, so he's not going to look to the future. Why would you say he created her to have faith? Well, if it's his creation. But you're assuming that God created her to have faith. But if she's if she's dead in sin, will she ever have faith unless God does something to give her faith? Well, but it's all it's all God's choices to create somebody to have faith or not. Right. <laughs> what I'm saying is, do you see anything in this particular passage that would lead you to believe that God chose based upon what He foresaw? Okay. Now, there's a second view that I think is a little stronger. Um, it's the corporate view. It's called the corporate view of election. Okay. And so some people at this point, especially in this passage of Scripture, they'll argue that election is more for national privilege or to carry um, what some would call a noble cause or to be the chosen seed to bring about the Messiah. So, okay, we've been talking all up to this point. Up to this point, we've been talking about individual salvation. Okay? We've been assuming that what Paul has been talking about is the salvation individually of Jacob and the salvation individually of Esau. Okay? What the corporate view of election says is what these are, are Jacob and Esau are representatives of nations or peoples. So Jacob is the one that was chosen to bring about the Israelites. He was the one that was chosen to bring about the Messiah. So what Paul's talking about, he's not talking about election to salvation. He's talking about Jacob being elected to be the one through whom the Messiah would come. Esau was not chosen to bring about the Messiah. Esau was not chosen to bring about the Israelites. From Esau came the Edomites, and they were a thorn in the flesh to Israel. And so Esau, the Edomites were not chosen to bring about Jesus. So we're talking here more about nations than we are talking about individual salvation. And so what Paul is, what the corporate view is saying is that Paul is choosing, and there's different views of the corporate view. I'm just talking about like the, what those that argue for like, a, like privilege, national privilege, they would say that Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Jacob is being chosen to represent the nation, to birth the nation of Israel, to bring about Jesus. Esau was, was rejected, and, and from him came the Edomites. So we're not talking about individual salvation. Yeah, eventually, if you, if you choose Jesus down the road, you will be part of that, that elect group that God chose through Jacob and eventually through Jesus. Um, but here's my question. What is, what's Paul's heartburn from the very beginning? 
Why is Paul upset? Because some Jews are not, what? Coming to faith in Christ. Is Paul concerned about which one of these is chosen to bring about the Messiah? Doesn't seem like he is. He's more concerned about his own kinsmen, according to the flesh, are not having saving faith. And so I actually believe that Paul is talking about individual salvation. Why are some Jews not chosen for salvation and why are others passed over? Now, I can go into a lot of reasons why I think that, but for the sake of time tonight, I don't want to get into the weeds because this may be the first time some of you are even being exposed to this. What I would say is this, neither... I don't think the Arminian view of foreseen faith you can, you can find in this passage of Scripture. Corporate view, they do have a point. I mean, was Jacob chosen to represent the nation of Israel corporately? Yes. Was Jesus through the lineage of Jacob? Yes. Was Esau, did, from Esau did come the Edomites? So there is some truth to the corporate nature of how God chose Jacob over Esau. But here's the thing. The bottom line is that that view, the corporate or national election, doesn't really answer the question that Paul raises and the angst he feels over ethnic Jews rejecting the gospel and going to hell. Individuals are perishing, and it does not say that the answer is that God chose one nation, Jacob, over another nation, Esau, to bring the gospel into the world. Question. Was Jacob saved and Esau lost? Or do we know? We know Jacob was saved. Okay, so let's ask a question. If God chose Jacob over Esau and it was not based upon anything they did good or bad, in order that his purpose of election stood, is one going to heaven and the other going to hell? Okay. The writer of Hebrews seems to think that Esau was not saved. Hebrews 12, 15 through 16 See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. He seems to, the writer of Hebrews, seems to, see, seems to teach that Esau failed to obtain the grace of God. Okay, now... Here's some conclusions. And again, you don't have to... You, here's what I'm saying tonight. You do not have to come to the same conclusions I'm coming to. You can choose to disagree with my conclusions. These are secondary issues, but we have to be honest with the text in front of us that teaches these things. So I hold to the view that Paul is addressing individual salvation. Individual ethnic Jews are not coming to faith in Christ, and this breaks Paul's heart. So why is it happening? Has God's word failed? Well, no. What's the answer that Paul gives? Number one, 
It was never God's intention that salvation would come automatically from one's birth or ethnicity as a Jew, but by faith in Christ alone. And number two, it was never God's intention to save everybody, but to choose individuals before the foundation of the world to be saved by grace. Now, Paul, I got two objections for you. Objection number one, that's not fair. Now, Paul, Paul, has taught, Paul has taught these truths enough to know that somebody in the audience is going to say, Paul, that's not fair. So he makes up a made-up argument with the person that he's arguing with. He's going to bring up the argument that he knows is going to already come up. It's called a diatribe. It's when you have a fake argument with somebody that you bring up because you know that there's going to be um, an objection. So he heads them off the pass and, and deals with the first objection. So let's look at this first objection. If, okay, so if you buy, if you buy, okay, the question is, why is everybody not saved? Because God chooses some and rejects others. If you think that's what Paul's saying, what's going to be your number one objection to that? Paul, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound fair. Okay, so let's read. Verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Here's the first objection that Paul knows is going to happen. Is there injustice or unrighteousness on God's part? If God unconditionally chooses who will and will not be saved, then does that not make God unjust or unfair? Where do you see that objection? It's in verse 14, right? What's, what's the objection? What, what are you going to say? Paul says, what are you going to say to this? I just told you how, how God operates. What are you going to say to this? That sounds unjust. And what's Paul's answer to that? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This goes back to Exodus 33, 19. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Okay, question. Who has the right to show mercy and compassion? God. Is God obligated to show that to everybody? Why? What does he say right there? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, is there anything in that text? Okay, so let's say, that. Let's say okay, I'm tracking with you, Paul. God, God's sovereign. God can show God can show mercy to whoever he wants to. I, I agree with you, Paul. God has the right to show mercy to whoever he wants. Next question would be, we know who God shows mercy to. Those who believe, right? If you believe in Jesus, you will receive mercy. Does the text say that? What's he just said earlier? It was before they were born, before they did anything good or bad. Not by works, 
What does he say in verse 16? It does not, what, it does not depend. What is the it? This is where it gets confusing in your Bibles. You got a, what I would call a naked it. You got an it out there that doesn't have, you have to figure out it. Okay, what's the antecedent to the it? What's the it describing? Is the it describing mercy? Is the it describing God's purpose and election? Or both? What does it not depend on, though? It. So then it, whether you take it as God's mercy or God's election, either one, what does it not depend on? Human human will or what? Mine says exertion or works. Okay, so let's define these. What's human will and what's works? If God's going to show you mercy... Or if God's going to choose you, is it based upon some decision that you made? He says it's not. Is it based upon something you are going to do? Then what does it depend on? If it doesn't depend on a decision I make, if it doesn't depend on something I do, then what does it, this mercy, this election depend upon? Well, Paul answers it. What does he say? On God who has mercy. So who's the ultimate decision of who gets mercy and who doesn't? God. And there's no conditions that have to be met for that. Okay. So how can that Arminian view even stand? <laughs> it can't. <laughs> I'm trying to be fair to it. I'm just saying that people believe that. I'm just saying be, there's a built-in idea in the Arminian view that God, that it's, it's unjust for God to just choose some and others without there being something in the person that would move God to do it. And they, know, and, they know, and they know it has to be before the foundation of the world because Ephesians tells us that. So their answer is, well, we know it took place in the past. Okay, if God foreknew what we would do, then let's just kick it down the road and say God saw the faith that we would have. And that was what he did to choose us based upon what he saw. But then it still goes back to the person. Right. The person's doing. And what does it say clearly right here? It does not depend upon human will or works. Now, however you define human will or works, okay, let me just ask you, let me just put it this way. Is Paul bending over backwards in this passage of Scripture to say God has a sovereign right to do what God wants to do? Seems to me like that's what he's saying. Now, we may not like that Paul's saying that, but... He is basically saying God has the right to do what God wants to do. And God's under no obligation. And it goes back to Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. This is talking about Israel, but God, God kind of gives a little bit of the reason why He chose Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord excuse me, has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay, let, let me ask this two different ways. Why did God choose us? I have no earthly idea. The answer is because He wanted to. Was there something that made God choose us? 
not based upon human will, not based upon works, not based upon faith, not based upon repentance. It was simply because God wanted to show us mercy. Is He obligated to show everybody mercy? Okay. Now, if you got mad at Paul, don't get mad at me, get mad at Paul. Um, <laughs> Paul takes it one step further and says, let me give you an example of somebody whom God not only just didn't show mercy to, but God hardened. Pharaoh. What's he say there? Is Pharaoh a nation or a person? Okay. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Let me ask you a question. Did Pharaoh hardened his heart first, then God responded to him. All right, let's look at Exodus. Let's look at the order. Exodus 4.21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, this is before he's even gone back, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Is God announcing beforehand what he's going to do to Pharaoh? Who's going to harden whose heart? God. Okay. Exodus 7, 3-4. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Who's going to harden whose heart? So twice God announces what He's going to do. I'm go Moses, I'm sending you back. That would be great. Think about Moses for a moment. I'm sending you back to the greatest king on earth, and I'm going to harden his heart so that he doesn't do what you're asking him to do. Thanks, God. <laughs> but God says, I'm going to do it. So and here's the reason why God does it. If you remember way back when we talked about the ten plagues, so that when the exodus truly happens, they know it's God. That God really did it. Okay? Exodus 7.13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8, as the Lord had said. The Lord said He was going to do this. Exodus 8, 15, But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay. What is Paul's answer to the objection that God is unrighteous in this unconditional election? Remember, what's the objection? Paul, that makes God unfair. What does Paul say? No, it's not. God has the sovereign right to mercy or harden whom He wants to, and Pharaoh is someone He hardened, which was announced beforehand by God. Now, here's a hard question. Is, and this is not in your notes, and I don't know if I want to spend a lot of time on it because it even brings up more problems, <laughs> even more problems than this, is Pharaoh an example of someone who God hards the heart? Does God still do that today to people? Like, does God harden a person's heart? Like, does God actively harden a person's heart? Okay. Let me just ask you, let's just, let me just briefly discuss this. How is everybody born into the world? Is everybody born dead in sin? Okay. 
Is everybody born um, hostile to God? Is everybody born enslaved and in bondage to sin? Okay. So is everyone pretty much depraved? Okay. So what's our, this is our starting point, right? This is how we start. How do you overcome that? Yeah, so if you, if you have faith in Christ, you move from being dead in sin to alive, you're saved. Okay. Now, here's the question. If you're already in this state, does God have to harden you? Or can God simply leave you in that state and not intervene? And if left to yourself, if left in that state and you die in that state, what happens? Okay, so does God have to do anything in you to make you sinful? No, you're already sinful. Does God have to do something in you to make you saved? Yes. Okay, so there's a big debate whether God actively hardens people today or do people, does God just leave them in their sin and passes over them? In what way? <laughs> well, if, if you're born that way and everybody has that choice to seek God and believe. But see, you're making an assumption that everybody has the free choice to do that. Sure, they're predestined, right? I'm saying everybody's born, everybody's born dead in sin. They are, but some are going to be predestined. Some are predestined. To be saved. Yeah, that doesn't mean they're automatically saved. They still have to believe. If you're predestined to be saved, you will be saved. Yeah. There's no such thing as a person in there's no such thing as a person who's predestined to be saved that won't get saved. Does that make sense? Well, is there is there a person who's not predestined that can be saved? No. Because if God did it, it would happen. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I told you this is difficult tonight. This is, like the hard, this is the hardest chapter in the whole Bible. So, objection number one is, God, you're not fair. Paul says, no, that's not true. God can do what he wants. He's under own no obligation to save anybody. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh's an example. Okay, so the first objection is, in verses 14 through 18, this unconditional election makes God unrighteous or makes God unfair. Okay, what's the second objection? Maybe you didn't think about this one. The first one's pretty, like, that's not fair. Okay, 19 through 23. Here's the second objection. How can God blame people if they reject Him? They can't be held responsible for not being saved when God chose not to save them. Do you see that objection? Okay, if God chooses people for salvation, and they had no choice in the matter, and they don't choose Him, then why should they be held accountable for not choosing him if God didn't choose them? Okay, let's read verses 19 through 23. You will say to me then, okay, here's another thing. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no rights over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory? Okay. Now Paul uses an analogy from potter and clay. Now, before we talk about that, what do you guys know about potter and clay? Who's in charge, the potter or the clay? The potter. Why? Who shapes the clay? Who makes the clay? The potter. Does the clay have any say in the matter? No. Okay. Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made to save its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed of him who formed, he has no understanding. Okay, this is where it gets even harder. You're like, Paul, can you just kind of tone down the, the teaching here? Look at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. We have to ask a question. How many lumps of clay are there? What's it say? One lump. There's one lump of clay. And what's, what does God do out of the one lump of clay? Some... Okay, some are vessels of wrath and some are vessels of mercy. Okay, so let's talk about this. Paul's been going all the way back to, okay, so you got one lump. And out of this one lump, you've got those that are going to receive mercy and those that are going to be, well, let's just say wrath. So the one lump of clay is representative of all humanity out of which God chooses some to receive mercy and others He simply passes over and leaves them in their sin and they will experience wrath. The same lump. Now here's the flow of Paul's analogies. Esau was an individual who was rejected by God before the foundation of the world and eternally lost. Pharaoh was an individual who was hardened by God's sovereign grace or sovereign decree and is eternally lost. The same lump is similar in idea to the same womb idea. From the same lump are made two different kinds of vessels. From the same womb came two different choices. Okay, so let's, let's, make, the, let's make the comparison here. From the one womb, from Rebecca's womb, came who? Jacob and Esau. Jacob was a recipient of what? Mercy. Esau was a recipient of wrath. But they came from the same mom. And when did the election take place? 
before they were born and before they had done anything good. Okay, if there's one lump of humanity, God chooses some to be saved, others he passes over. When did that happen? Before the foundation of the world. Okay. There are going to be both Jews and Gentiles, the one lump of humanity, that will have, that will, they're chosen for individual salvation and love before time, namely vessels of mercy, while some individuals out of both Jew and Gentile are passed over. I didn't highlight the rest of my notes here, so you're missing like half the sentence. It should be, are passed over. Okay, now... Verse 23 is very, very difficult. I've been saying that all night. It gets very, very difficult. Well, it's been pretty difficult the whole night. Okay. Verse 23. This is a tough one. Verse 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He's prepared beforehand for glory. How do you guys handle that word prepared? When you hear the word prepared, what do you think? God prepared some for mercy and God prepared some for wrath. Who's preparing whom? Some people look at that verb, and there's a, there's a case that could be made that the people prepared themselves to be vessels of wrath because they rejected the gospel. So because they rejected the gospel, they prepared themselves for vessels of wrath. But I don't know if, if we can go that far because of what Paul's been saying up to this point. Yeah, so I'm going to stop right here because this is mind-numbing, frustrating, if it's the first time you've heard these truths, confusing, and I want to make sure that we, we answer your questions. Romans 9 is a very, very difficult passage of Scripture. And like I said, I don't think it's difficult to understand. I think it's difficult to accept. So questions on this passage before we get to the conclusion. <laughs> Nancy, you can ask your question. I don't care. I, I just feel like it's like lining people up going on one, two, one, two, one, two, all the ones are But from God's perspective, does He do it that way? <laughs> that it's random? I think it was even before that. Put Like puts what in us? I think that was made before the world. I think that was made before the world was even created. Because he knew way back many, many before we were going to all be created, he was going to put in his 
puts in us. Like you, before the foundation of the world. Yeah, before the world was created, God made the choice. So the question is not when did God do it. The, 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 the Bible says God made the choice before the world was created. The question is uh, how did God do the choosing? Did God do the choosing by looking down and seeing and knowing? Or did God do the choosing simply because He did the choosing? Those, those are kind of the, the things you have to wrestle with. So that the act of choosing took place before the world was created. How God did it, that's where the debate comes in. Does that, does that make sense? We don't know why God chooses some and God doesn't choose others. But we know it's not based upon works, and we know it's not based upon human will, and we know it's not because we did anything good or bad. It was because of God's purpose. Right. So, yeah, and, and He's going to not show mercy to anybody. Exactly. Like, right. Right. But by choosing, I do have a question. By choosing some, the people that He chose, did He make a purpose for them? Like, Okay, so you're talking about ends and means. And I think God does it all. Did God save you to be an instrument to save somebody else? Yes. Yes, so God not only ordained that you would be saved, but how you would be saved, when you would be saved, the manner in which you would be saved, the people that would come into your life to be saved. Right. God never does anything without a purpose. So are you saying like even if they were predestined to be saved, like if you have your children that you bless God later on in the day, that you instill that in them and raise them in a Christian home, they could still end up being one of the rejected? That's a different question. The question is... If somebody's true, the question would be, what makes a person truly saved? If a person has truly trusted Christ for salvation and been born again, they will be saved. Now, they may go through a period of backsliding and a period of disobedience and a period of walking away, but if they're truly saved, God will discipline and bring them back, and they will be saved to the end. So the question is not, the question is, were they truly saved in the first place? And everybody's saved by believing in, in does, does that make sense or not? Well, but they were predestined though to be saved. The kids, right? If they're truly saved. There's a lot of false professions where people think they're saved or walk an aisle or raise a hand or get baptized just because they're wanting to please their parents that they were never truly genuinely saved. And then they walk away because they never did have that faith. It's so personal, Tiffany, I know what you're talking about. Um, I would say in your situation, because he's still, the child is 14? Yeah, no, 15. 15, he's not 18 and on his own, you're still the parent. And I would, for, I mean, 
Would you rather him be in church around God's people, seeing, hearing God's songs, hearing some truth in a context where the Holy Spirit can work on him, or would you rather be him sitting at home playing video games? And him, I mean, he's going to be mad at you at home, or he's going to be mad at you at church. Would you rather him be mad at you at church and get something out of it? I'm just, I mean, it's a, it's a parental choice. You just have to make that choice. Do you want him in an environment where he's going to hear the gospel and maybe force him? Or are you going to say, you know, I'm just going to let him do his own thing. And then if you let him do his own thing, who knows how far he can go away from the influence of godly things. But sometimes they forgot to lock on until they realize They do, but there's a difference between a 14-year-old kid and a 20-year-old person that's out of the home. I and mean, When you're still the parent, I think you still have authority to, to, to say, we're going to church whether you like it or not. And you will behave. And you, you don't have to listen to Pastor Sean. You could sit there you know, and pout and not like it, but you're coming with us as a family to church. And if not, there's consequences. I mean, that's the way I would do it, but if they're 21, you can't do that. If they're 25, you pray for them and you encourage them. But if they're still under your, under your roof, you've got to be a little firm in how they... Dennis, I think you had a question. Yeah. So you almost have you have a chapter to where uh, you're not going to understand. It. Yeah. And I and I would I would say, and you can speak only for yourself, but I mean, even when you speak it to people, you say, "Now I'm going to tell you what it says." Right. But I can't necessarily, you know, right. explain it to where people will well, understand and, it. Well, let's. Some Let's not lose the forest for the trees tonight, okay? Let, I mean, we've talked about predestination. We've talked about election. We've talked about all these things. But let's go back to Paul's heart. Did Paul know the identity of who was going to be saved and who was not? Because if he did, he wouldn't be upset. He would just go to the people he knew were elect and share the gospel with them. Paul has an anguish in his heart. Okay, so let's make this very practical. Whether you believe a person uses their free will, whether you believe a person's predestined, both those, both those views, one thing has to happen. The person has to hear the gospel in such a way that they can repent and believe. And so our biggest concern would be we are heartbroken, we are in anguish over people who are lost, and our ultimate goal is to share the gospel with as many people as we can. If they use their free will to get in, cool. If God predestined them to get in, cool. But they're not going to get saved unless we tell them. That's the one place we can agree with. Can we, can we all agree that nobody gets saved without hearing a gospel presentation to where they can repent and believe? So we can sit here, we can sit here, we can sit here and argue all day about. Who's, oh, we can sit here and argue all day about how God saves, and we have some pretty strong opinions, or we can be heartbroken that people are not saved, and share the gospel with them. And if you believe it's free will, you can't control their choice. And if you believe it's God, you still can't control their choice. So either way, what's the one thing you can control? Telling them the gospel with that compassion, that heartbreak. That I mean, you can. if we're not broken over the condition of loss. I was thinking about this this week. This is totally separate, but this came out of my quiet time, and I shared it with my staff, so I'm going to share it with you. Um, turn to Luke. 
we, we're not going to finish. We're going to go to Luke tonight, okay? <laughs> totally, but, but this is something that hit me. Luke chapter 1. I'm, I'm starting to read through Luke, the beginning of the year reading program. Reading, I'm reading the book of Luke. Um, Luke tells the purpose as to why he's writing this book to Theophilus and whether Theophilus is a real person or whether it's a, a synonym for the church, we don't know. But basically, um, Paul says in, in Luke 1.1, one, one, inasmuch, as, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word we delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus. Okay, Luke says, I'm going, to write, I'm going to write a gospel compiling all the eyewitnesses to give an orderly account. And here's the purpose, verse 4, that you may have, what's the word in your Bible? Certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And I stopped and thought about that. For me personally, I have been taught the truths of the gospel from a very early age, and for that I am very thankful. And then it got me thinking, all the Sunday school teachers, all the youth pastors, all the pastors, all the commentaries, all the podcasts, ever since I was a kid, all of the exposure I've had to the gospel that I've been taught. And then I thought about, there are people in the world right now in unreached people groups of places that we go on mission trips to that have never been taught. They don't have certainty of what they've been taught because they've never heard it. And that humbled me to think, Sean, you've been taught a lot. And there are people that have never heard this. And so my heart started to break like, wow, don't ever take for granted what you've been taught because there's some people in the world that have never heard this yet. And that should break our hearts, that what we've been taught, they've never heard. And some of you have been taught ad nauseum to where you've been taught, you've been taught, you know, you've got study Bibles, you've got curriculum, you've got Bible studies with notes in them, you've got um, conferences you've gone to, you've been to retreats, you've heard pastors, you've got podcasts, you've got televangelists, you've been taught, 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 and there's people in this world that have never heard the name Jesus. And Paul's like, that breaks my heart. And so, yeah, recent. But like you said a while ago, if they're predestined to receive the mercy, then at some point they will be taught, right? Yes, but that's no excuse for laziness to say, well, if God's going to do it, God's going to do it. That's why we go. Right. Because we don't know. God knows, but we don't. So we still need to be obedient to the Great Commission out of love for lost people, out of love for Christ. But, yeah, but theologically, yes. If a person's elect, they will come to faith. Somehow, some way, through God's sovereign means. And even if you're supposed to, even if, like, quote, unquote, you're the one that's supposed to share with them and you're disobedient, God will just get somebody else to do it. You'll miss out on the blessing, and God will just use somebody else to get it done. Okay. Well, your head is about to explode tonight. This, 
this is not something, let me just put, let me, let me give a surgeon's general warning as we close out tonight. Pastor's general warning. This doctrine of predestination, of God's choosing, of election, of free will, this topic has been debated for thousands of years. And there are fine Bible-believing Christians on both sides of the fence. And if for some reason you have a differing view of what I may have on this doctrine, it's not a reason to divide. It's not a reason to, um, to get overly upset. I mean, I think you can have some strong beliefs, and you need to know what you believe and why. But here's what I would say, because I've had people over the years come into my office and say, I don't believe in predestination, Pastor Sean. They didn't throw their Bible down. but they, I don't believe in predestination. And I say, okay, the Bible uses the word. What is your definition of predestination? I don't know. I just don't believe in it. Okay, how do you understand what the Bible teaches? I don't know. I just don't believe it. Okay, wrong answer. Your answer should be, here's my understanding of the doctrine after studying it myself, and here's what I believe. And if you come up, if you come to me and say, here's what I believe and here's why I believe it and here's my case for it and this is where I land on it, I'm going to say, God bless you, that's awesome. I'm glad, I'm glad you've done the work. You sounds like you've come to these conclusions on your own and I'm, I'm happy for you. But if you come to me and say, I don't believe it, and then I ask you, well, what do you believe? And you don't tell me what you believe, you just don't believe it. That's not an answer. So the burden's on you to go back and say, okay, why don't you believe it? Or the way, believe it the way I believe it. Just don't, I just don't believe it. Well, okay, you've got to go back and study the Scriptures and come to conclusions and say, this is why I believe it, these are my reasons for it, these are my Scriptures for it, and this is where I'm settled on it. And I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is I don't believe it, and then I ask you what you believe, and you don't give me a positive view of what you believe, it's just I don't believe it. Does that make sense? puts the burden back on you to know what you believe and why. We're always going to disagree on secondary doctrines. And that's fine. But if we're going to disagree, then come with your reasons for why you disagree, not just I disagree because I disagree. I think it's because it's a hard pill to swallow. It is a hard pill to swallow, but you've got to swallow some pill because it's in front of you. So green pill, blue pill, Arminian pill, other pill, whatever pill, you've got to swallow it. You've got to deal with it. And you may say, okay, at the end of the day, this is the pill I've chosen to swallow, and here's why. And I'm like, okay, that's great. When we get to heaven, you'll realize you're wrong, and that's okay. No, 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 I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just being, I'm just joking on that. So, all right, any other final questions before we leave? We've got five minutes. This is your opportunity. What? I said I could see you at the gate. No, I, I'll be at the back of the line. Um, yeah, basically, guys, if you want to look at the last of the notes there, really what Paul does is Paul, Paul brings it to a close and says, listen, um, at the very, he, he quotes from Hosea and he quotes from Isaiah to basically say, God saves both Jews and Gentiles and makes them one people. And that's always been God's way of doing it, is that God has always back in the Old Testament save Gentiles as well as Jews. And so doesn't save all Gentiles, doesn't save all Jews, but Jews and Gentiles will come together as one people and they'll be saved by grace. And he quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages there to give proof for that. Um, 
So that's kind of what, you can go back and read those Old Testament passages, but that's kind of how he brings it to a close. Because the whole issue is Jew-Gentile relationships. Okay, the next, chapter 10 and 11 are still difficult. Okay. It'll get fun when we get to chapter 12 because we get to practical living. Okay? <laughs> we get to how do you have good relationships and how do you, you know, deal with, but this is like, we're like in the deep part of Romans, so nothing like coming after the first of the year into the deep end of the water of Romans 9, 10, 11 are pretty deep. I told you guys we'd end like at a really good note right before Christmas, and then right when we came back, we're going to get into some deep waters. So, But you guys used your free will to come here tonight. Some of you were predestined to come here tonight. Some of you used your free will, and so you're here, and take, take, take what you get. So, all right, let's, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you. Uh, this is a difficult passage, and Lord, we um, we want to be f- we want to be fair with the text. We want to study it. Um, Lord, I, I pray they don't t- just take my word for it. Um, Lord, it's it is a hard pill to swallow. Um, it's an emotionally disturbing pill at times. But Lord, at the end of the day, we have to submit our wills to what Your Word says. It never should lead us to pride or to um, arrogance but should always lead us to humility that you did save us. And Lord, it should lead us to heartbreak like Paul for those around us that don't know you. Lord, there are, there are people in northeastern Colorado that don't know you. There's people all over the world that don't know you, and you've put us in strategic places around those people to be salt and light, to share, to speak up, to be an encouragement. So Lord, help us to do that this week and uh, for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.